0: Welcome back to the Everything Elite Patreon, and this is steam I'm joined, or this is AB, I didn't say that. I'm joined by Mike. I guess I should have said, this is part one <laughs> of This is steam <laughs>
1: <laughs> This is Mike! Why haven't we been doing that for this entire series, you know? We should be introducing ourselves that way.
0: Well, we can do it for parts two and three and however other many parts there end up being.
1: We'll forget. but let, let, like yeah. Let's call a spade a spade. I, I, I did this once. There's no way I'll remember I did this even when I'm editing the show this weekend.
0: No chance. So unless people bring it up to us later, we will forget.
1: All right, so if
0: you've been following along on Twitter and the Discord, I decided I wanted to do This is Sting next. I started putting together a list of matches. This led to me deciding I should just watch... A ton of Sting matches. The idea was basically a lot of the, well, his like Memphis and UWF stuff we're going to talk about, I had not seen. The early Crockett stuff, I definitely had seen uh, the Flair and Sting match we're going to talk about, but all the WCW stuff, I watched it as a kid, but I'd never like gone back and rewatched it. So I was like, you know what? I'm just going to look at all this with fresh eyes. I ended up watching, I don't know, 50 plus matches and uh, narrowing it down, kind of, to about, well, either 15 or 16 matches. We'll see. But basically, I've got it into various eras. And here on part one, we're going to be talking about Sting's time in Continental or Memphis, uh, the UWF, which was previously Mid-South and basically late-era Crockett, or what some people would call NWA. But this will be from 1985, basically through almost all of 1989, is what we're going to be talking about. So I guess I'll ask first, Mike, if you were familiar with any part of this era of Sting before watching
1: this stuff. So other than, like my general love of the idea of power team usa which we'll get into i demand we at least spend two minutes on power team usa in this part because it's one of the most insane things that like real cocaine brain stuff uh i would watch for this like with like why we wrestling like back history sting was not someone i ever really sunk out when i got back into Doing deep dives, I guess, is better. When I started doing deep dives, Sting was someone I always kind of had a grasp of. I was like, I, I don't feel like I need to go re-assess uh, Sting. So, like, I've, I've, I never saw him like any of this Continental or UWF stuff. I've never seen. I have seen the Clash match that we're going to be talking about today. So, like, out of this first, like, really six things, I've only seen like the, be main been the Clash of Champions one before this. Cool. So, did you have an opinion on like early Sting, like? And
0: I know you hadn't watched, yeah, Memphis and UWF, but had you like, you know, through osmosis developed an opinion about like early Sting?
1: So, I'll lay out my general Sting theory right now because I feel like that this is a good enough place to do so. Sting was someone that I always had a belief of that up until a point, really. In the early 90s, he was not very good, but he was insanely charismatic and had a great control of the crowd, so he didn't have to be incredibly good. And then he went on the run, really, you know, when World Championship Wrestling became the thing and not just the TV program name, then he was the franchise. And that kind of was how I followed him. Never really watched much of him in TNA other than, like, the crazy stuff that you would see clipped around there. So, like... I've always seen him as a guy who has always had a killer look, like that is first and foremost with Sting, and that's something that really the I would argue just like on the outset, the first five years of Sting's career, eighty five thirty nine is a body guy figuring it out, and that's kind of what my uh, conception of him was before starting this project, or at least the as I like watch stuff with Sting in it, like ninety two's. War Games match, of course, and stuff like that. It's like him being able to figure out the crowd loves me. I'm not naturally gifted, not necessarily as like wrestling psychology wise. How does this like get all put together? So really interesting. Yeah, and I don't think we'll
0: get much into it on this episode, but something I want to explore as especially uh, parts two and three is like. What does Sting tell us about what makes a good wrestler? You know, And I think we'll discuss at some point how we rate Sting as a wrestler and why. And I think it's pretty fascinating how you come down on Sting because it probably tells you a lot about what you value in wrestling.
1: Right, yeah. And as someone who has really reached my own nirvana of just caring about is this person over are they just working a whole lot i feel like like getting my my eyes reopened to him now is going to be something more enjoyable because at least like just like the one minute of uh, or like the, the one sentence elevator pitch of this sting as soon as Sting like started working with people that were better than jim Hellwig, he started to understand how to work and that really, I feel like, is the story of this. Uh, at least that's my opinion. That's, that's my initial surface takeaway.
0: All right. Well, let's start at the very beginning. Uh, Steve Borden was a guy in Southern California, co-owned a health club, a Gold's Gym. Uh, according to him, a guy came in one day with three big guys trying to break into pro wrestling, looking for a fourth guy to join, tried to recruit somebody from the gym, didn't have any luck, asked Sting, did he want to do it? Sting had no idea what pro wrestling was. He'd never heard of it.
1: <laughs> Rick Bassman, everybody.
0: Well, okay, I just said it. But then he says, I had heard about it, but never seen a match on television. Never been to an event. He just knew that it existed in some way. So this guy takes Sting to a WWF, or you know, it's guess Titan event at this time, uh, in LA. Hulk Hogan, Iron Sheik. He claims the British Bulldogs and Andre the Giant were on this card. Hard to say, uh, but he thought it was great. Always wanted to travel, get out of California, so that's what he was going to do. So we went to wrestling camp. Had his first match on Thanksgiving Day, 1985, in what he calls Jerry Jarrett's mid-Southern wrestling.
1: <laughs> God, what what a what a beautiful recollection! Mid-Southern wrestling. <laughs> yes, which
0: I don't actually think is true because I'm pretty sure. They did some wrestling in California
1: before they went to Memphis. Right. Power Team USA. Right. And I've like, I've never seen any of that. I don't think any of it has. I mean, there's like promo stills of Power Team USA. Right. I don't think any of it really was taped. Right. So did you get much into Power Team USA or should I talk about Power Team USA? Oh, no. USA? You run with it, bud. All right, so Rick Bassman, who is a Southern California-based promoter, and he's been a promoter forever. Like I still still think he was like promoting up until the pandemic, I believe. But uh, he had this idea that was very very eighties core, I would say, and it was the idea that he was going to form this touring group called Power Team USA. And this is, we're talking about uh, mid-80s at this time. And what he really wanted to do with this was get four or five. I, I could always find five, but I always can find four, but the fifth one's kind of hard to find. Uh, just hugely jacked guys. Like, I know you don't, are you up on Righteous Gym Zones at this point, Aaron, as of the time we're talking? Or do you no. know of anything that happened this season?
0: I've watched an episode or two at the beginning of this season, but I'm not up to date.
1: I'm okay, so so, so so you do remember Kelvin Jim Sones, like, uh, muscular men. The, yeah, like, I, I know a,
0: there's a wrestling storyline,
1: yes. Well, the thing about this is that, basically, it, 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 in a lot of ways, it was Flash-themed Steve Borden, Justice uh, Jim Helwig, Commando Mark Miller, Glory Garland Donahoe, and the Fury Ed Brock and it basically was like he wanted to have like this touring stable that would go around and be able to just uh, drop people off in territories and you would have like this group in there and in a way it's kind of was ahead of its time like if you think about like uh i'm blanking on the uh, ice ribbon girls prominence is that what their name is prominence it's like that kind of thing but the thing is this was late 85 Rick Bassman, who later ended up like working a lot of New Japan way after the the fact, everyone pretty much bailed, other than Hellwig and Borden in '85. Like it was a very quickly lasted thing, and that kind of was it. And then Bassman kind of became the guy who founded uh, UPW, which is known as the the school that uh, produced John Cena and Samoa Joe. So just like a weird thing that I always find tremendous there's not very many photos of power team usa together but if you watch the continental stuff you'll get a big idea of what power team usa was supposed to be absolutely yeah it's like
0: a continuation of it uh they were calling sting flash at first but then he came up with stinger which was uh shortened to sting and he gave jim helwig who of course if you don't know was uh, later the ultimate warrior his first name which was the rock So they were Sting and Rock originally. Uh, Basically, they were trying to do Road Warriors. That was like their idea when they got to Memphis. Uh, So that's just what they were hoping to do and like find their way into working Road Warriors. That was what they were trying. Uh, So they start in the Continental Wrestling Association, which was based out of Memphis. Uh, This is the Jarrett Territory. Uh, But there they were known as the Freedom Fighters. And there's some really great stuff in early Wrestling Observers in 1985 uh, about the Freedom Fighters. In the December 9th, 1985 issue, Dave writes, Newcomers are the Freedom Fighters, two huge bodybuilders from Southern California who can't work a lick. Yep yeah <laughs> <laughs> he, he's so cool further the next week december 16 1985 the freedom fighters are steve borden and jim helwig two gigantic muscle guys from southern california I've, I've been familiar with them since they started training now borden is just a big make that huge guy helwig is the most muscular big guy i've ever seen in wrestling he's much larger than the road warriors he's also got matinee idol looks my immediate reaction was if he could wrestle a lick he'd really be something When they got into the ring, they were the two worst wrestlers I have ever seen. They make Kendall Wyndham look like Sayaba, honest. Now they're just starting, could amount to something, but I've never seen anyone start off from such depths. Unless you see them, you won't be able to concoct a vision of how muscular and awful they are. I don't know if they could maintain those physiques in wrestling. I shouldn't say this, but I will anyway. The kind of money they're probably making wouldn't even pay their bill at the pharmacy
1: yeah i mean
0: <laughs> i know that was long but the whole thing is so great to me
1: right yeah and it it's something that like i just just as time recording if you're going through like our twitter feeds i posted a photo of helwig and and borden as i think this is them as the freedom fighters actually and you just like look at them and considering it's 1985 and really like steroid usage always existed in wrestling after a certain point, like really like the seventies, like it was like kind of like after the Munich Olympics, that's when steroid usage became more of a thing outside of like bodybuilding uh, communities. I believe I might not be wrong. Don't at me, but uh, it, it it's something like you see these two guys and they're taking after the wa- road warriors. And I think that's something that's worth like diving into for a minute, just because of if you're someone who is newer to wrestling and you always hear like road warriors and the road warriors and the road warriors had this established traveling act at this time they were mainly based out of awa but the idea was that you would have hawk and amel who were two impressively jacked dudes they would come out to iron man by black sabbath and they would run through people they would have like two minute matches because that's all that they that their hearts could stand with how much steroids were in their system and they were the most over things So that's what Rick Bassman was trying to key in on. And that's why when they left off this, that was the act you emulated. And we'll be talking about another like tag team emulation act later on when we start talking about Mid-South, but that's kind of what they were doing there. And Aaron, I know that I love watching wrestlers develop. I love seeing them go from their first match to their retirement. It is one of those things that I think is actually one of the truly enriching things is kind of seeing people figure it out and that's one of those reasons why i'll still watch dark and i'll watch all of dark most weeks and i'll have like one sentence reviews for aaron that he's just like how many times has mike said that a diamante match is fine but i like seeing that happen here and i will co-sign what dave Meltzer said i don't think i've seen a tag team since have such or people that were trained to be wrestlers not like freak show acts but trained to be pro wrestlers be so bad as the Freedom Fighters in 85 Continental.
0: Well, that's, I mean, I agree, Mike, and that's why I started, I agree with the thing about uh, developmental or, you know, watching people develop. That's why I included, as far as I know, the very first match on tape of Sting along with Jim Helwig versus David Johnson and the Invader from November 23rd, 1985, Continental. They are, we see them get introduced to the studio audience they are, you know, put over as just white meat baby faces, uh, and also, you know, they're single to let all the ladies in the in the crowd know. Uh, then they have, you know, this match with these two guys who look terrified when they run into the Freedom Fighters, and it is—I mean, with twenty twenty-two eyes, you could ha- you would hardly call it a wrestling match. It's just. Some people running and then they do some moves.
1: <laughs> yeah, like the, like the most that you'd see is a shoulder tackle was like the most you could see. And like bless David Johnson and the invader because they basically got clobbered. They got thrown around, not safely. And it ended with like a power, sl- a body slam that let me tell you something. I imagine that David Johnson had a real rough next week after that no chance whatsoever to get his to like lay flat on this he was just basically shoveled to the mat uh the promo was it was incredible because hellwig already looked insane and he uh warrior was always a a mental case i don't know why like the uh uh, vice documentary tried to say like oh at a certain point he lost his mind or like he when he got famous he kind of like lost it no he was uh, he was saying insane shit already in his first promo it was great
0: Oh, yeah, he was insane from the beginning, and basically, uh, the fans didn't quite take to them. I, I wonder why. You know, they really weren't. I mean, Helwig was already pretty charismatic in his own way, but... Yeah, he, yeah didn't read the room, though. No, did not read the room, but Borden was just kind of like standing there, or staying, you know, just kind of standing there, uh, so the Memphis office decided to turn them heel. They gave him Buddy Wayne to coach them, uh, later Dutch Mantell. And the next thing I included is not a match but well I mean it kind of becomes a match I suppose but it is the heel promo where they're kind of they're being introduced as heels and a guy called Phil Hickerson comes out and interrupts and I just I know it's this is Sting and Sting I don't I'm not sure if he says a word or he says maybe a little bit in the promo.
1: He looks awkward. He yes. looks like straight up uncomfortable to be there.
0: But I just had to include this because, first of all, it's insanely compelling once Phil Hickerson comes out there, in my opinion. But second of all, just I just wanted people to see it, thought it was fun.
1: Yeah, so uh, Bob Coddle, bless his heart, trying to make sure that— uh, uh, Jim Helwig doesn't run down all of their stars, calling Jerry Lawler fat, calling Bill Dundee like a piece of trash, and, and then like saying like, oh, and then Hickerson immediately coming in and calling him on steroids, something that did not really happen in 85. Like, this got real very quickly. And let me tell you, Hickerson did not work light in this impromptu match whatsoever. He sh- tried to beat the living shit out of them. It was really kind of uh it it, it was being taken to school by someone just not reading the room if you're in memphis yes jerry lawler terrible person but if you're in but if you're in the studio on i think that was i think it was saturday mornings or sunday mornings but if you're in the studio there you have to like maintain the kind of aura around it i mean the whole thing about the uh who was the one that like that like in the nineties, called out his statutory rape accusations. Jerry Lawler, who was one of his like, you, like that was a veil you Did not pierce in Memphis, and they did, and they paid the comp, and they paid the consequences, and it rocked. Watching uh, Jim Helwig get the shit kicked out of.
0: Yeah, this ruled, and you can imagine that guys like Hickerson probably hated these dudes. I mean, especially Helwig. I mean, he seems to have graded on everyone that he ever came in contact with. But you can imagine these just like good old boys who had been doing wrestling the way they'd been doing it. And now here's these pretty guys uh, who are, you know, juiced up uh, coming in. And I'm sure they weren't happy about it. So I'm not surprised he was a little stiff in this
1: impromptu match. But Hickerson's uh, still alive, by the way, Aaron. I would not have guessed that Phil Hickerson is still with us. 75 years old. Wow. Good for him. Uh, Yeah. Apparently, he became a DJ in Jackson, Tennessee. (laughs) (laughs)
0: <laughs> here here was dave's take in the december 30th 1985 issue of the observer the freedom fighters turned heel on 12 7 tv when they were making fun of fat phil hickerson <laughs> hickerson wound up beating up on jim helwig until steve borden interfered the sight of these two super stiff guys beating up hickerson was hard to take as big as they are uh, and they're much bigger than the Road Warriors or the Koloffs, and Hellwig has a tremendous physique as well. They are the most unmenacing looking people. They look like harmless models. And when they try to beat people up, uh, they are so slow and stiff, they even look worse. So tight. So he, says, tight. he says, even Lance Von Eric is tons better.
1: <laughs> wow. Wow. Have you seen much Lance Von Eric? That guy fucking stunk. Yep. He was like, bad. Even comparison to Carrie who had charisma and not dissimilar to Sting in a lot of ways. Now that I think about this. Aaron, I in the chat I did link a I did drop a link to uh Phil Hickerson dropping a pineapple chicken recipe and photos of Phil Hickerson in his kitchen right now. <laughs> oh and let me gosh. tell you, he has the sick old wrestler forehead.
0: What a hilarious picture of Phil and his wife Anita. <laughs> good for them good for them wow he's what? now recently retired it says he's a member of the wrestling hall of fame what what hall of fame is that ah, oh the memphis gonna... wrestling hall of fame it says later in the in the article i'm gonna read yeah. that later
1: for sure gotta find a way to adapt that you know toss some tempeh in there maybe Absolutely, you know down you can make that work for you bud uh, in uh,
0: January 1386, issue of the Observer, we found out that the, the Freedom Fighters, they were feuding with the Fantastics. Dave says, this is ridiculous because the Fantastics are both midgets and the Freedom Fighters are twice the size of the Road Warriors. <laughs> <laughs> Dave, yeah. like early Dave, is just on another level.
1: Yeah, like everyone who thinks that his grammar never has been good in anything like this. But right. you know how, how I'm working stiff in 2022? Dave worked stiff in 83 through 87, basically. Oh, he, he absolutely did.
0: Uh, and they they morphed uh, into the Blade Runners. That was where they went uh, from the Freedom Fighters. That was kind of their heel persona. And they, I mean, look, Helwig, not surprisingly, just ends up gone from Memphis, uh, you know, Didn't really get along. Uh, Dave reported it this way, February 17, 86. Steve Borden, the smaller member of the Blade Runners, separated his shoulder and is out of action. They got rid of the other, Jim Helwig. Both were going to be fired anyway within a few weeks. Do you realize that since these two stiffs started, they've made every issue of The Observer? (laughs) 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 So funny. Uh, But then they end up in UWF, the Universal Wrestling Federation. This is... Uh, Bill Watts, It, of course, used to be known as Mid-South. They had still been Flash at that time, or Sting was still Flash then, but he becomes Sting uh, and Rock here in Mid-South, and they were being managed by Eddie Gilbert in Mid-South. So this starts like a whole new era for Sting, especially, because... Hellwig doesn't last very long in uh, in Mid-South or in UWF, uh, but they get paired up with Hot Stuff International. They got Eddie Gilbert, Missy Hyatt, uh, and they're kind of just like the heavies for them. And I guess a good place to start is the, uh, the workout video, Mike.
1: Yeah, it when you sent me the files, I was like, okay, this is going to be like a comp of the Blade Runners, you know, running through people. No, the, uh, this was like straight out of a Kenneth Anger film. It starts off with the two of them walking into a warehouse. Uh, they are wearing matching bicycle shorts, weight belts, and T-shirts This says Bad Attitude on it. Sleeves cut off, completely greased up, face painted up. And all they do is get really sweaty for a minute and a half and bench press. It's amazing. It is one of the early great music videos in wrestling history that sadly seems to be forgotten, and it shouldn't be, because it is fantastic.
0: Absolutely. Uh, Eddie Gilbert was feuding with Bill Watts, who was you know, the, the guy in, uh, in UWF at this time. Uh, July 7, 1986, uh, Dave writes, It all started when Watts had a match with Blade Runner Sting, Steve Borden, who incidentally is getting better. Wish I could say the same for his partner. <laughs> and if Watts wanted to get five minutes alone with Eddie Gilbert. So that's where they start. Uh, in mid-1986, Hellwig leaves. Uh, and then we get a run where Eddie Gilbert and Sting are a tag team. And a, a successful tag team. They won a the tag belts from the Fantastics in July of 86 uh they ended up winning them twice and even a third time uh with with rick steiner we're gonna eventually get to the match here uh but i had some wild stuff in here uh, from the observer that i just wanted to include um sting one thing that Dave says about him. The fantastic speed Eddie Gilbert and Sting, quote, or in parentheses, Sting no longer wears makeup and now makes teenage girls
1: drool. <laughs> hey, it is something that as soon as he found, went to Mid-South, started working with Eddie Gilbert, things came together for him, at least work-wise. So oh,
0: absolutely.
1: And, and I think it's something about the Hot Stuff International Act, too, that really helped out there because you really... it. Was kind of ahead of the time, I would say. Hot stuff international in a lot of ways because it had that Missy Hyatt was a tremendous manager, good commentator too. Uh, Eddie Gilbert, one of the smartest people, I, I would say, one of the craziest too in wrestling history. And then like you plug in people like Singh, Rick Signer was a part of it at one time. It just was one of those like huge acts, and it's one of those things that especially like. Happened with uh with this at this time is you know like I would not say that he really progressed as a wrestler technical wise but boy did he understand how to work at this point like much earlier than I expected. Absolutely. Uh,
0: in September of '86, Dave is always is already suggesting Sting should be the most Im- or one of the candidates for most improved wrestler of the year, and to give Dave some flowers in his Who's Who in Pro Wrestling 1986 uh, edition, about Warrior, he says, could be a future star, but probably will never be a good worker. And about Sting, he says, uh, may also be a star of the future, possibly the most improved wrestler of 1986. So even at this point, people who are watching closely can already tell that Sting has the potential to be a big star. And even, you know, when you separate him from Helwig, The chance to be a good
1: worker as people understand that from like a work rate perspective. Well, I mean, let's talk about what happened to both of them immediately after splitting the the Blade Runners, because I think that's kind of how it was really cemented. Uh, Hellwig did a very brief scent in world class, which was not known necessarily as like a, a work rate heavy territory in Dallas-Fort Worth. It was, it was probably the most soap opera of it because the one storyline was people turning on the Von Erich brothers and, you know, uh, hair cream. Like those were the two big ser- st- storylines at one point in world class. It ruled, but he didn't get a real opportunity to work because then a near immediately, Vince McMahon like saw him as Dingo Warrior. It was like, I need him right now. And he was hidden on WWF, at least up until really the attitude area, would run multiple house show loops at one time. You would have the big one, the A loop, as it was called, that would always have like Hulk Hogan on it. And then you'd have like Macho Man Randy Savage headlining the B loop. He was always put on the C loops. So it was something that like, and the people in the C loops, it was like, oh, we're making dates, we're wrestling basically in the high school gyms. So. You have that happening, whereas we just talked about how uh, Borden as Sting, he got to work with Eddie Gilbert, who is someone that really, if he didn't like have like all the heart problems and wasn't like a crazy person, probably would be, if he made it to the Attitude Era, he would have been one of the biggest stars in wrestling just because he got it at a certain way. So it's obvious how they, they, they did part of there, and we see the two trajectories there.
0: Mike, are you suggesting that when you're a young wrestler who uh, can improve that working with a more experienced wrestler and a tag team can be helpful to your development?
1: Oh, th- th- that's earth shattering. I've never thought about that before, Aaron. <laughs> y- y- you should go and go tell every wrestler to go do this because this is you're breaking ground here. Like you just took us to the moon.
0: Well, somebody tell Tony Khan about it is, is simply what I'm suggesting. So it might be a, a good way to go at times. Um, But that takes us into 1987. Frankly, we we got through Memphis a little more quickly than I anticipated. But we're in 1987. uh, January 1987, Meltzer writes, if Sting and Rick Steiner continue to improve at this rate, they'll be one of the best tag teams in the country by the summer. So the the stock for Sting is rising quickly. Uh, This match that we're going to talk about next, uh, he's still teaming with Eddie Gilbert, but this is in the Fantastics feud in UWF. The match was February 7, 1987. There's a million of these matches. You can find a ton of them on YouTube. They ran this over and over, these matches between these two teams. Uh, they're all excellent. You can pick any one you can find on YouTube and watch it, and it is a delight. Uh, but this is the one I picked. Sting doesn't do a ton in the match, certainly Eddie Gilbert and the Fantastics carry most of the match, but I thought you could really see the progress that he was making as a wrestler in this one.
1: Yeah, you could see the progress, and you also can realize that with Eddie as like his partner, you don't need Sting to be big, jacked up dude just completely like doing a Road Warriors act. Like it was clear that. And there are many attempts at road warriors that happened throughout the decades and nothing ever really comes close to road warriors other than if as a road warrior edit. So like it just didn't work there. So like in this one like, he's basically acting as a heavy he's billed as from every man's nightmare, which is sick as hell. Like I did not know that that's where he was built for like deep and like I he's built as that like up through WCW, which I'm like, wow, that's, you know, he's already like one of the most over people on the roster, and you're calling him from every man's nightmare. That that's sick as hell. Every but, woman's uh, dream. I mean, if you hear the screams of this. Was this at uh was this at the Uno Arena in New Orleans or was this was not at the Superdome? This was not a Superdome match for them, right? This is not the they do the Battle of
0: New Orleans, uh, but this is not that match, I don't
1: think. Right. Right. But like you know, UWF not in a great place at this point, but the crowd was incredibly loud for them and having them again. Like I, I, here is the thing I was going to say about emulation tag teams. I like the Fantastics more than the fabulous ones because all of them are kind of based off the same trope. Like and at the same time you have the Southern, the even more Southern version of like that heartthrob tag team and the rock and roll express, like the most well-known and the best one out of all of them. But fantastics here i mean especially like you're thinking about like rogers was someone that just like flies around incredibly well and sting was like adapting to kind of the uh the environment there and being able to work like a style that you know you could see the through line now you could not see it in memphis but you could see where he started building on things like in a lot of ways this felt like a fresh debut for sting at this point yeah
0: I think early on, and this is a, a thread I want to come back to, and we'll kind of see uh how he progresses on it, that the main thing you can tell is that he doesn't always know what to do next. Like he's got his moves that he's going to do, but he can get confused about like, oh wait, where where should I go from here? He he knows already, like insanely early on he knows how to get the crowd going and how to incite their uh, their emotions but like psychology wise as you were talking about earlier uh w- ring work wise work rate wise he doesn't always know how to string moves together
1: no no he doesn't and it's something that like that's why you had like eddie gill he could basically be like a young lion standing on the apron, come in, do like some throws, do like a Beal, do like some, do do like some hits. And that's really it. And that's all you really kind of want him to do because he could sit there and watch Eddie Gilbert versus the Fantastics. You know, I mean, and it's something that really, I mean, we're talking about maybe mid into the nineties, like deep in the nineties where sting really kind of got like how to put all that stuff together. Like, when you talk about someone like Sting, you're not talking about a technician. You're talking about someone who learns how to work. Like that this is what this the this three-part series is. It's an exploration on how to work a crowd. Because it his UWF run was like the first time that you're like, oh yeah, he's starting to understand how to work a crowd in a fantastic way.
0: Right. And that's kind of the overriding question here, right? Is like what is work? You know, what is working? Uh, where well, you're talking about whether it's good or bad. And, I mean, uh, spoiler alert for everybody, Sting never becomes, you know, Dean Malenko or Crispin Benoit or, uh, you know, Fujinami or whoever the fuck, Kenta Kabashi in the ring. Uh, so you kind of have to decide on other things, whether you think he was great or not. And that's what we'll explore as we go on. In February 23rd, 1987, Uh, Meltzer writes, I can't get over just how much better Sting looks every time he appears on TV. If he continues at this rate, he'll be a great wrestler by the end of the year. But there was uh, a big change in UWF right around this time, because in April of 1987, Jim Crockett purchased Mid-South Sports, which owned uh, the UWF from Bill Watts. Uh, This starts the beginning of something that we're going to see a lot through the rest of part one of this miniseries, which is Sting being subjected a lot of times to changes in who is running things. And my theory of these first five years of his career, certainly the last three years of these first five, that is a lot of what holds him back is it's always a new person with their people that they're invested in. And Sting kind of ends up, he's always, early on, he's always kind of an outsider. He's not really, he didn't come from where all these other guys did. So I think he struggles to get purchase sometimes because of that.
1: Yeah, and I think that goes back to the way he was found into wrestling. Like he was brought into as like a gimmick act. So you just like to talk about 85 through, you know, when JCP really, you know, uh closes down uh uwf you he has like five bookers he's working under with completely different styles so you're talking about memphis style which i mean just was not going to work at that point of the career so it, it it basically was like an aborted debut for him and then in uwf you have watts and then you also have eddie gilbert who watts is a lot more old school eddie gilbert you know, was responsible kind of for the rise of ECW. Like he was the part, he was the catalyst of it going from tri-state to Eastern to ECW. And then you get into the whole clusterfuck that happens at JCP and world championship wrestling. So this is a guy that like he, uh, it like the endearing thing about him is that the, the fans latched onto him, even though he was this outsider and it's something that, you know, you don't see happen very often in wrestling just because of how different his route is into wrestling. So
0: at this time, when Crockett buys UWF, what they do is keep UWF as a separate thing, but also they'll have the UWF guys working Crockett or NWA dates. So (laughs) it's a shit show basically Uh, yeah
1: yeah uh, the best way to explain it is like this is the real consolidation phase of the death of the territories yeah and
0: i didn't want to like dive too deeply into all that because if (laughs) i consider my if i continue my non-series i'll eventually talk about all this Uh, but yeah basically crockett wanted to buy mid-south or uwf Sorry, people who are, are so fucking confused, who like aren't familiar with these two things. Uh, but Crockett bought this for the television, for the television that UWF had. He didn't care about anyone that was contracted to UWF. It had nothing to do with that. It solely had to do... In fact, as I recall, he didn't buy the contracts of the wrestlers. They like They worked out separate deals. With Crockett, uh, rather than uh, you know just buying out their deals from UWF, so it it just didn't matter. That didn't matter whatsoever. So they're just like, ah, here's this thing that we're going to keep over here. We're going to keep doing our thing. Uh, Dusty Rhodes is booking Crockett at this time, and he starts. Sting is one of the guys from UWF that he starts having working um, NWA dates. So Sting is working more now. You know, we're seeing him keep working UWF stuff, keep working Crockett slash NWA. Uh, This is, in this era of The Observer, also Dave is doing regular rankings of singles wrestlers and tag wrestlers. And I'm gonna, I've kept track of that as I've gone through these to give you a sense of like what the, you know, smart fan view of Sting was during this time. So in the May 11, 1987 Issue of the observer. Dave rated the Rick Steiner and Sting tag as the number six tag team in the world.
1: Which is insane, to yes. be like quite honest. Because when we talk about 86, you already have like, I mean, Crockett's still a tag team territory at that point. Like Flair is still like on the come up for like that. You have all the stuff that was happening in Japan at that time. You had the British Bulldogs. You had the Hart Foundation. And you have Sting, who could not really wrestle up until coming into Mid-South as the number 6th ranked tag team wrestler in the world. Yeah, I'll
0: give you his other ones, or the ones above them. Uh, number 1, Akira Maeda and Nobuhiko Takada. Number 2, the Midnight Express. Number 3, the Road Warriors. Number 4, Jumbo Saruta and Tenru. Number 5, Keiji Budo and Shiro Koshinaka. And then number six, Rick Steiner and Sting. So if any of those other teams mean anything to you, it should tell you how well thought of this tag was in 1987.
1: Yeah. And I mean, think about like some of those Japanese names you've named. Like those are like the huge stars of Japanese wrestling up until 2000. I mean, the only person you're missing out on this is is Tiger Mask 2, Mitsuharu Misawa. You know, like you have like Tenru, you, you have Maeda, you have Takeda, you have... uh you have Shiro Ko, uh, Koshinaka, who. You got Mudo. <laughs> Mudo. Mudo. Yeah. Mudo. Jumbo. I mean,
0: you got everybody. Jumbo, yeah. I mean, yeah. it's insane. And obviously the Midnights uh, and the Road Warriors. So Which yeah. which Midnights was that? Was that Rose
1: and Condre?
0: This is Condry 87. I know it was Condry.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Well, hell. No, you Randy got Rose might have been out of wrestling briefly at that point. The, I'm trying to remember which. No, this was Condry and Bobby Eaton. Ah, beautiful Bobby. This time.
0: Yeah, this would have been Condry and Eaton. All right, so they, I know we kind of skipped over this, but they end up being the UWF tag champs, staying in Steiner. Uh, they lost the tag titles to the Lightning Express and my uh, Smoky Mountain Wrestling listeners will appreciate that this was the team of Tim Horner and Brad Armstrong. Uh, Gilbert accidentally hit Sting with his boot. So they fell out. And Steiner ended up with Gilbert. Uh, After that, there was uh, a Sting match with Terry Taylor. And this was in mid-1987. This is going to be a big thing going forward. And Gilbert interfered on Terry Taylor's behalf. and cost Sting the match. So Taylor and Gilbert are attacking Sting, and then, you know, we haven't gone into, like, all the things that were going on in the UWF, but Taylor (laughs) had formerly tagged with Gentleman Chris Adams, so that was, like, related to what was going on, and Adams came out to help Sting, asked Sting to uh, team with him, he did, and this was Sting's face turn in UWF.
1: And it's worth noting that w- just because I don't want to take content from your next show, it's Chris Adams, most known from World Class, would go back to World Class because of the purchase by Jim Crockett promotions. Like a lot of the people that did not end up landing in NWA slash WCW ended up going back to dallas Fort Worth.
0: Absolutely. And in the June 15th, 87 version of The Observer, Meltzer says that I guess the The way this was filmed on TV, you didn't really get to see the angle very well, uh, but Dave writes, doesn't matter. It's obvious Sting has the charisma to be a top babyface. I'm afraid that without Sting, Steiner may stagnate, and in fact, it seems he already has since the beginning of the year.
1: Oh, how things would change for him as soon as his little brother comes around. Indeed, but it turned out to be prescient as Rick
0: Steiner as a star generally. I mean, for sure. Yeah. I mean, always obviously the bigger star of the two, even though the Steiner brothers obviously were a huge tag team all over the world. So obviously this was going to a feud that was going to involve Terry Taylor, but bad news. Terry Taylor is in a really awful car wreck with Eddie Gilbert and Missy Hyatt. He got very badly injured, uh, was in the hospital for a long time, so well, not a terribly long time because, you know, three months later, he uh, has the match that we're going to talk about next. But it delayed things, certainly. There's no doubt about it. But then in September, September 13, 1987, we see Sting versus Terry Taylor. This is my the next match that I chose. And the, the point of this was to see Sting in a singles match. At this point of his career, I thought that was important to show how he was progressing, and now we get to see him working as a babyface.
1: Yeah, and things came together. Basically, is the the big takeaway here. Uh, just running down my quick notes I have here: uh, Eddie Gilbert is handcuffed to Shane Douglas during this. That becomes like the big kind of storyline about this match, like uh, because of the hot stuff international stuff. Uh, my my second note here: Sting is already very cool, like just. The screams, it's something that in wrestling and you really heard this in world class, you hear it in some other places, but I don't remember ever really hearing it in Mid-South, just like the women in the crowd just go nuts for Sting, like when Sting gets his shine, it's just a different pitch. You know, I mean, like you would hit it was constant if you ever watch a uh, world class with the Sporatorium or if you watch Dragon Gate, like it's just a different tenor there. Uh, and he really did progress to a point there that like Terry Taylor, like the car wreck probably derailed his career, at least in ring. I mean, outside of the ring, I mean, he's still in wrestling. I mean, he, I think right at this point, he's back with NXT. He might be the guy actually truly running NXT at this point kind of a crappy guy like outside of the ring but that's neither here nor there but he was already at this point like this was his first real heel run too so he had a guy on his first babyface run in sting with terry taylor who up until really going to mid-south was just white meat babyface you know like the young handsome babyface junior heavyweight champion like that's what really where he was like in the late 70s and the early 80s but when he came back and joined up with like hot stuff international and it really kind of changed things. and the angle ending this, this is what I am glad you included this because mid South, you know, I mean something about like the Gulf States, they understood how to do like these insane angles that just rule and talk about the angle Aaron, because it is one of those like things that when you like see it play out and see what they're doing in 1987, it's, you know, phenomenal stuff. Just sound.
0: Well, Taylor, uh, you know, and you're saying it was Taylor's first run as a heel, but he was very hot as a heel. I mean, the the crowds had really, I mean, I guess it's the opposite of this, but it really warmed up to him as a heel. So, you know, if if this, especially if the uh, car wreck doesn't happen, you know, this could have been a really uh, insane match. Uh, but when you factor in everything else that was going on yeah this angle uh is sick because exactly the thing that you're talking about mike it's like you can hear how the people feel about sting uh terry taylor's super hot as a heel so it's just the perfect combination of classic pro wrestling booking for these two to be at each other's throats
1: yeah so eventually uh the referee gets bumped uh Eddie Gilbert is able to undo the uh, handcuff and just starts throwing chairs at people, uh, handcuffs staying to the ropes. Jim Ross, early Jim Ross, just going like, he's crucified. He's crucified. And then you have, I, I I don't know the other person, but the the big thing is like, why can't anyone get out there? Missy Hyatt on commentary going, oh, it's all fine because Rick Steiner and someone else is literally standing on the doors to prevent people to run in. And then like after five minutes, like they go to commercial break and they're still beating down this. Shane, uh, Shane Douglas is bleeding. And they come back and suddenly like you get the Bayface roster, uh, Michael Hayes, uh Buddy Landell. I didn't recognize the other people there, finally coming out and showing off there and the crowd exploding for when Michael Hayes and Buddy Landell popping up. It was sick.
0: Yeah, it's great ego. That's I'm glad you mentioned Jim Ross because other than Memphis, Jim Ross, well, and obviously TNA later, but Jim Ross is the voice of basically all of Sting's career, uh, you know, un- until, yeah. wow. un- until TNA.
1: Yeah, I mean, and then you have the threat of Mike Tanae. So you ha- it's That's basically right. like those two guys are the voices of his career outside of like the year in WWE.
0: <laughs> yeah, exactly. So you get a ton of Jim Ross and Tony Schiavone in uh, in all these matches, certainly on part two of this, we'll see a lot of Tony Schiavone. And, you know, Jim Ross is very good in the UWF years and in the uh, the Crockett years, the early WCW years. You know, I've definitely, when I've gone back and watched like WWF Jim Ross, I'm like, oh, wait, was this guy ever good? And then it's good to go back and watch <laughs> this. Stuff. You're like, oh, yes, he was very good at one time.
1: It was the toga at WrestleMania 9. That, that I think that killed or, it. So, that killed it. I mean, everything before that, one of the best commentators of all time. Everything after that, decreasing demands, just decreasing returns. And I think it's because he had uh, Vince McMahon put him in a toga. He just couldn't perform anymore. He can't get it up.
0: <laughs> and I think we're also seeing continued progression with Sting in this match of him being able. I mean, Terry Taylor was good, but we're not talking about some of the workers we'll see him in the ring with later. And Sting quits himself very well in the match.
1: Yeah. And it's something where he has figured out like, all right, I'm big guy. I he's gonna work over my knee. Like that's like the thing there. So the thing I think that really improved with him, if we're gonna compare where he was with Hot Stuff International to here, is he learned how to sell. He had to learn how to sell in this match. And especially You know, selling the beatdown and being handcuffed to the ropes and getting chairs thrown and broken on him. So, you know, it's something that I think, like, that is the thing that comes together in this match. Because, yeah, Terry Terry Taylor probably could have been a bigger star if it wasn't for various reasons. But he was not, like, the the two people we're going to talk about in singles matches later on this episode. Sting figured it out. Yeah, and the...
0: When we talk about Ric Flair in a little bit, that's where we can really talk about Sting's selling and how what Flair does really shows off Sting's strengths. Uh, if This is not breaking news to anyone, and we're not even there yet, but I watched, I don't know, a shitload of Sting and Flair matches while doing this, and if you don't already think Flair is one of the best of all time, I, watch him wrestle Sting compared to watching any other person wrestle Sting in... 1989
1: oh yeah i mean compare rick flair's match with sting versus rick flair's later feud they had with terry funk like you could see same rick flair there same level of performance and he that there's a reason why the saying was that rick flair could wrestle a broomstick to a three-star match
0: indeed man he's very good it may i mean obviously i'll never get the chance but it made me want to do a this is rick flair that'd be like 30 parts probably
1: yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, that... I mean, how much AWA... I mean, he, you, you would have to go through some, like, fat Ric Flair stuff to start off, and that would be really yeah. cool. Like, episode one might be the one, like, talking about Ric Flair before the plane rack.
0: And, and when you get into the meat of his career, like, every match is 60 minutes. So... Actually, this sounds miserable, the more I think about it.
1: Yeah, I mean, don't have the time, man. 2022. No, no, I don't. Okay, so...
0: What happens with Sting next, really, you have to know what was going on as far as Crockett and UWF. So Dusty is booking Crockett. Flair is on top. But this is like the beginning of people talking about Flair needing to be cycled down. You know, like maybe we've reached the end on Flair. Maybe he's stale. Uh, Luger was a guy. Lex Luger was a guy who was seen as the next big thing, certainly for Crockett. And Dusty was viewed as having uh, a clique of guys that he focused on to push. And this is a time when you see Sting as the outsider. Uh, You know, I don't know if it's revisionist history. People say that, you know, Dusty viewed Sting as a top star. I'm not sure the booking bears that out, other than the match with Flair that we're gonna talk about. Uh, but Dusty definitely had a group of guys that he liked to focus on, including himself. You know, Dusty would never be accused of being a selfless booker, I don't think. Uh, but the the <laughs> UWF guys all got isolated and, and minimized. UWF was basically booked as like the B team uh, against the Crockett guys or with the Crockett guys. You know, for if you're not, if you're just like a, a newer Wrestling viewer, like this isn't a perfect analogy, but kind of like the invasion in which the WCW guys are just given short shrift compared to the WWF guys. That's kind of what happened with Dusty and the UWF. So it was tough for everybody, uh, including Sting, even though he was one of the guys who ultimately made it out. But it got so bad that in the October 26, 1987 issue of The Observer, Dave reported that. Eddie Gilbert will be meeting with Vince McMahon this upcoming week, representing himself, Terry Taylor, Sting, and Missy Hyatt. It's no secret within the industry that Sting is one of the wrestlers Titan covets the most. And Titan refers to Titan Sports, which was the name of the company that ran WWF, essentially.
1: Yeah, and it's worth saying, like, and, and I think a reason why this happened is that, as you mentioned Uh, Crockett wanted the TV in the southeast and he would still have UWF programming there but it would be like UWF and then Ric Flair would show up there and he would basically marginalize like Eddie Gilbert uh Dr. Death Steve Williams and they, they like putting them in the varsity club became like a later thing that they did with that but it was very clear that Dusty had very little interest in people that weren't like Carolina guys or people that he's worked with in Florida and then georgia for the last 20 years and you know it's something that's also worth like this is just complete aside this was eve this was like right after like six months after uh dave stopped the observer for like six months because he worked for wwf as a researcher like there was a brief period of time that the observer stopped so you know Maybe it's something that, like, and he's talked about how uh, people within the BBOF, especially like George South, read The Observer. So, you know, like, there's a reason why Titan covets Sting. Like, they, it wasn't like that he was a mystery guy. It wasn't like Dingo Warrior in comparison.
0: Well, it's also, I don't know if it's this early, but it's also well known that, that Vince McMahon himself talked to Dave Meltzer
1: with some regularity. So. Oh, sure. Yeah. No, I mean, I forgot was the last time Dave said that he talked to Vince McMahon. It was like after it's like something completely wild and it wasn't like Benoit. Like it was like much later.
0: Right. And this carries on as we move into 1988. Uh, And I don't know if people like this or not. I enjoy all the Observer stuff. I don't know if people find it boring or, or what, but like to me, it's the only way we have of like how it was chronicled in real time and seeing how it played out. And it's from the perspective of people who watch wrestling in the way that we do. So I think it's the best way to talk about this stuff. And that's why I include a lot of it. Uh, but in February, uh, in the February 22, 1988 issue, Dave is talking about that. He can't emphasize enough just how quickly Lex Luger fizzled out as a baby face. So he's talking about Luger. Uh, he says, Even though Sting needs lots of work on interviews and may not be as muscularly defined as Luger, Sting has the rapport and has totally passed Luger by. It becomes more obvious each show as the audience reacts to everything Sting does while seemingly acts ho-hammy, I don't know what that means, when Luger and Wyndham talk. Sting has more of the cool GQ look of today, but I've got the feeling in their infinite wisdom, the NWA will keep all three at the same level, thus inevitably ensuring none get over to the point they'll make a difference. Well, two out of three.
1: Two out of three, you know. Indeed. I mean. They tried to flex Luger for so fucking long, and that guy... Oh, yes. Oh, fucking sucks. Lex Luger. Luger? Never good. Never good. Like, I, 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 I challenge you to, like, name a... Lux singles match that was good, that was not because of, like, Ric Flair or Ricky Steamboat or people he worked with.
0: Yeah, Luker's an interesting guy because obviously he's got the perfect look for a pro wrestler. And the crowd reacted to him, you know, largely because, I think, of his look. He had, I don't know that I'd call it charisma, but he had a personality that was like, okay. But he just, there's no nice way to say this lex just always seemed really fucking dumb and i just don't think he had the ability to put matches together like i don't think he understood it you know how to put it together to make it make sense
1: yeah i just you know and he looked like how he was brought up he was blo- he was brought up in places that like crockett not really the place if you're a young wrestler you want to start off at really and i know he had other places he was at in between that but i mean like like we saw like why mid-south was so important for staying we have seen how other people go work japan go work mexico luger pretty much just went wcw to wwf back to wcw and you know just never really was pushed there i mean you're never like at least in wwf vince McMahon was like all right Let me tell you what we're going to do here. You're the narcissist and then you're the Lex Express. God damn it. That's what we're going to do. You're going to body slam Yokozuma on the Intrepid. Like you, that was like the best way to book him in a way because he just never learned. Oh, yeah. Well, and even uh, as Dave points out, you know,
0: the Florida territory literally died with Luger on top in 86. So not a guy that really ever drew or, or pushed
1: business in any way. Yeah, I can't think. No, he never drew a dime. Lex Luger might be like the person that was pushed the longest with like the shortest receipt of reasons why to, other than look at the roids you put in his body. Look at him smart.
0: But Dave is already uh, figuring at this time that Sting is not going to get the chances that Luger does, even though he surpassed him, which. Uh, would certainly be true. But for one brief moment in time, one beautiful moment in time, at the very first Clash of the Champions, we get the main event is going to be Ric Flair versus Sting. But before that, in the March 21, 1988 issue of The Observer, I just think this is fun because Dave previewed the clash and this was his thought on the upcoming Ric Flair versus Sting match. He writes 20 plus minutes, lots of near falls. Sting won't sell the suplex. Rick somehow will get caught before he can jump off the top rope. In other words, this match will be exactly as expected. I'm not complaining. It still could be the best match of either card. He's talking about the uh, Titan card that was running around the same time. But do you know of anybody who is really excited about seeing this match? Prediction. Flair will get destroyed. He won't lose the title. The finish will be something we've all seen dozens of times. Woo!
1: <laughs> God. So it's worth stating he's referring to uh, WrestleMania Four, one of the historically awful WrestleManias of all time. Like this is yes. much better than anything that was on WrestleMania Four, which also has just this compared contrast. Ultimate Warrior defeats Hercules Hernandez in four minutes and 29 seconds and the non-tournament match because they were, this was after Andre the Giant handed the WWF title to uh, Dead Dubiasi, Frank Tunney, stripped him of the title, and then they did a tournament at WrestleMania that just was awful. Just a dreadful tournament there.
0: And The Clash was put on free TV to, you know, to oppose... Wrestlemania 4
1: that was the whole idea drew a 5.6 right in 1988 which is insane because cable adoption at that rate like it's still like building up at that point but 5.6 against uh Wrestlemania not a good house from Greensboro though sadly
0: uh no but we'll talk more about the the ratings on on this match in particular in a minute but right before we get into that uh, Sting, as far as I can tell for the first time, jumps into the singles ratings in The Observer. Dave has him as the 40th best singles wrestler in the world on March 21,
1: 1988. I'm not going to count 39 wrestlers right now in 1988 that <laughs> I would say that are better than Sting. But I'm willing to guess that The Ultimate Warrior did not sniff this list whatsoever.
0: Uh, well, I've, I stopped uh, what I pasted at 40 after okay. Sting. Uh, and sometimes, you know, sometimes Dave would list 10. Sometimes he would list 80. I mean, you just never know what he was going to list. Uh, but I know he had at least 40 here and Sting snuck in right there at number 40.
1: Uh, were there any funny names on the list above him? Uh, I mean, no, It's it's a pretty
0: good list, to be honest.
1: Flair probably at one, uh, Saruda. Actually, Flair's at three.
0: Number one, uh, and this was something I enjoyed going through these, uh, through these observers. Number one is Owen Hart.
1: Okay. Owen, all right, was so, beloved
0: bl- bl- by Dave and the observer readership at this time.
1: Yeah, no, like it. It makes sense. Like Owen was like early mainstay, but. Owen Hart, number one in 1988. The best wrestler in the world, according to Dave Meltzer. I and love it, actually.
0: <laughs> yeah. That is so sick. So that leads us into March 27, 1988. Clash of the Champions won in Greensboro, the Greensboro Coliseum. Uh, this is, of course, in Jim Crockett Promotions. Go for it, Mike. What did you think about Sting versus Rick Flair? I guess I could say it's a 45-minute draw.
1: Yeah, it's a 45 minute time limit draw. There are judges. One of them is a penthouse, uh, what do they call it? A pet Penthouse pet pet? Penthouse pet. Yes. The, I can't remember yeah. if she was pet of
0: the month or pet of the year.
1: Yeah. Uh Gary Juster. Pet of who, the year. Just oh. Throw that in there. I mean, I bet Rick, you know, and her had a had a friendly conversation afterwards. So uh it it's kind of insane the way that they did this draw. So they had five judges Gary Juster, uh famous, uh a wrestling uh, backstage promoter. Like he was the person that had all in happen was because of Gary Jester, uh, Patty Mullen, the penthouse pet of the year for 1988. Uh, Sandy Scott, who is, I, is he related to George Scott? I want to say he is related to George Scott. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. And then Jason Hervey and Ken Osmond. That's right. Ken Osmond was part of it. Of course, Jason Hervey has a long history with wrestling. Most, Notably for being uh attached to the hip by Eric Bischoff, Ken Osman. For those who don't know, the original Eddie Haskell from Leave It the Beaver and Sandy Scott declared this a draw, so apparently, no matter what, the other people voted, it didn't matter here. Uh, this ruled this match. I've seen this match before. Uh this was on like one of those Ric Flair WWF box sets that, that was like the first time I'm saying is it's something where Rick Flair at this point really was just like at a golden age, and saying he's being cycled down. He wasn't even forty, and they were talking about him, wanting to be cycled down. Has Sting's easily his best match of the career. The crowd is just going insane for Sting at this point. Here, he's not there yet, but he more than held up his end of the deal, and it just was like a really smart formula how they work this. That it had the insane, uh crockett slash watts rules about the top rope you can't throw someone outside the ring and that became like such a big thing for jim ross saying that was momentum that was momentum that was not a deliberate throw that was not a deliberate throw one of the dumbest fucking rules in wrestling history i would say the over the top rope rule just fuck off with that uh something that he really likes doing and staying loves doing this sort of thing. Like there was a lot of knee work there, but Sting loves doing his flying forearm on the outside into the turnbuckle pose where there it's like, how is he going to do this? How is he going to do this? And it was like really built up to at like 40 minutes. Like it was originally like it was Ric Flair just completely, you know, outclassing him, but he couldn't get Sting to tap out. He would try to do hook and crook and he would try to do this. Tommy Young might be my favorite referee of all time. Is excellent in this. I love Tommy Young, Aaron. Like, he just playing the referee role better than anyone else. Like, dumb when you need a referee to be dumb, a motive the way you should, always checking the shoulders for the figure four, always like doing this. Just a fantastic referee. Like, when I think about the ideal, you think about Tommy Young and Jim Crockett promotions here. And yeah, it's just something that they really kind of played up. Like, because the reason why I say the over the top rope rule is so fucking dumb it's an immediate disqualification if you are thrown over the top if you throw your rest, if you throw your opponent over outside of the ring that's a disqualification there and jim ross constantly bringing up that it's he did not throw him over the top rope here because the crowd wanted to keep uh sting you know alive here and then really just like how exhausting it would be if you were J.J. Dillon in this match. So J.J. Dillon was hung from a birdcage above the ring for 45 minutes, just standing there in a cage for 45 minutes, and you have to be in character the entire 45 minutes. It, it, you're you're being held up by a crane, basically. That must suck a whole lot. And then my, my last note here is uh, the fact that Sting, right before the final stretch, said, do you want do you know how to party or what And you scream this and the crowd went nuts aaron do you know how to party or what i definitely do
0: not know how to party just want to be clear about that yeah so
1: the finishing sequence was incredible uh after attempting like three times for the stinger splash he finally hits it goes for the scorpion death lock And the ring announcer, you know, maybe a little bit in Ric Flair's books because he was counting him down for like the last 30 seconds of the match. You could see Ric Flair was just trying to like grit through it. And, you know, the clock at 45, the bell rang and Ric Flair survived. You know. We're in Greensboro
0: in this match. Considered Flair country, right? Greensboro.
1: Oh, yeah. I mean, he's built from Charlotte. That's only a just under two-hour drive. And Sting is so fucking over
0: in this building. Insanely over. And remember, this guy is like the UWF guy who's just kind of been around. You know, he's not like anywhere near the, uh, the presence on their shows that Ric Flair has had. But the crowd just immediately loves Sting
1: yeah they just get him it's something that like i am he doesn't really have a big heel run really after hot stuff international but he got enough maybe it was like seeing like the fantastic sell for him you know chris adams like one of the uh underrated baby faces that like he could work both sides to be honest chris adams chris adams was cool and then the super kick chris adams uh and, but like without really like any sort of big kind of hype here they were able to have uh him be the star of this match when this was all happening right before the matches that rick flair will be most known for the ricky steamboat series and it just was just awesome stuff like uh i don't know it's very hard for me to rate star rate matches that are almost 40 years old, basically, or f- almost almost 35 years old. But man, this had to be like the best match at that point of Sting's career. And he held up his end of the bargain, Aaron.
0: Yeah, that's the thing for me. It's like, you know, Ric Flair was directing the match, right? Like Ric Flair is obviously carrying the match. But Sting keeps the pace with Flair. He does everything he needs to do. His selling is exquisite. He is able to uh get cut off in compelling ways, like uh when his offense comes around. His comebacks are good. You know, I, I think they're honestly, when I watched these in order and I saw this match, I knew Flair had a lot to do with how good he was, but I was like, oh wait, did Sting the Sting become a super worker in '89? And I forgot about that? <laughs> <You know? laughs> because this is so good. Ah. Uh, he, like, there's a little story here where he keeps making mistakes on, like, high-risk moves, which I thought was cool, you know, that uh, ties into, like, you know, Flair just being uh, the veteran in the match and all that stuff. Having the Scorpion on it, uh, Deathlock on it at the end really worked. Yeah, it is hard to rate 35-year-old matches, but for me, with 2022 20, eyes, eyes, uh, I went four and a half. I thought it was a great match. Excellent match.
1: Yeah, I'd put it at four and a half. Like I, I'm well, Trot, saying that you know I don't think Ric Flair is the best wrestler of all time, but it's something where you know he was able to have his match, and as you as you laid out, Sting was like, I know Steamboat is the guy that everyone thinks as the foil to Ric Flair because of the '89 series, because of the Family Man versus the Ladies Man, the Flair for the Gold, like that's why everyone thinks about Ricky Steamboat as like his, uh his rival. And it's even something that the last match in WCW history is Flair versus Sting because Sting really was the rival. Sting represented the other side with him in, in like such a way that like, and, and that's on top of the fact that Sting never left. Sting was the franchise. Sting was the person that had like the coolest gimmick in 1998. <laughs> like it's something here, but sting in this match like this is the big step forward from him and i i know that this i i have your list in some dm somewhere i apologize i don't think we're going to be talking about the big sting squadron versus deadly alliance match in this series we're not no. no no but do you think there's a lot of difference between sting in 93 and sting in this match because i don't think so i think he's there right now He he came along a lot sooner
0: yeah, and I think we'll get into this a lot on part 2. And I, I you really you see how much he progresses. In part 2, I think we'll start to see like where he stalls out and where his major flaws are. Uh but yeah, I think he's a guy who got a lot better really quickly and then <sighs> my big take frankly is that Sting was the perfect tag wrestler and him being a singles wrestler basically his entire career like it was and i'm just talking from a work perspective like from a star perspective it was the exact right thing to do with him the crowds loved him he was the biggest star uh, most of the time or at least one of the biggest stars once he really was elevated in wcw but if you wanted to have him have the best work rate career you could imagine he would have been a tag guy forever
1: yeah i mean he is the heater Like, that is the ideal role, is that seeing, you know, Wardlow, in a lot of ways, is having the kind of, like, first three years on the major scene that Sting really should have had versus having that hot stuff international run. And then, you know, like, he'll tag with people, but he's not a tag wrestler at that point because he should have been the heater. He should have been the hot tag. Like, imagine, I don't want to put the Blade Runners in this, but imagine Steiner, uh, Rick Steiner, of course, and staying versus the Rock and Roll Express, like running that up and down the seaboard across the Alliance. Like that would have been such a killer kind of thing. And then eventually you do the breakup with Steiner and staying, and you still have that insane babyface run. Or you could have them turn babyface and then they could go against the Midnights or the Deadly Alliance. Like, there was a lot of mileage left with Sting as a tag team wrestler, which would help him improve because he'd be working with people like the Rock and Roll Express, like the permanent baby babyfaces of that territory at that time, which, I mean, teach him, you know, how to make the girls scream more. I mean, that's important thing about wrestling. And it would have given him the chance to work with better wrestlers because as we saw the big step he took in Mid-South with Eddie Gilbert and with Terry Taylor, imagine what it could have been working Six months against Bobby Eaton at, as a tag team wrestler. It it, it could have been insane because we've seen that he has the ability to adapt. We see he, he's not dumb. He's not like Jim Hellwig, who, to be quite honest, the Jim Hellwig we saw in Memphis is the exact same Jim Hellwig that was in WWF less than a decade later. He could have learned more. And it's just like, God, send him to, because I know he did a little bit of Japan. But send him to all Japan for a real world tag league in like 89 through 92. Imagine what kind of stuff you could have gotten out of staying or 87. You know, I mean, talking about like the tag team rankings where he was there, getting the chance to work with some of those teams could have been phenomenal. It could have been even more amazing than it is right now. Yeah, that's basically why I think he stalls out
0: is that he's really not a tag worker after this at all. And when he is, it's with big stars, usually, or, you know, it's like in service of something else. It's not working the fantastics, you know, it's working the two other guys that you have singles feuds with, or whatever, you know, it's a very different deal. Uh, He also, you know, kind of gets forgotten for long periods of time in his career, you know, in just nonsense feuds that really don't matter, uh, up until he really becomes a big deal again, Uh, which is fascinating, because... In the, well, I, I meant to, I wanted to include this first. That Sting and Flair uh, from Clash One does end up winning the 1988 Match of the Year in the Wrestling Observer. So it was very well regarded at the time. Uh, Dave rated it four and three quarters in April of '88. Uh, Dave he used to do a lot more of uh, previewing the awards, like taking early looks at the awards, who were the candidates and front runners. Uh, and an award at that time was hottest wrestler, but not like obviously Sting was the hottest wrestler. But uh, he meant, you know, who had the most heat, who was the most right. uh, exciting at the time. He says, of course, it's Hulk Hogan, whose popularity transcends pro wrestling. But the second hottest guy in the business, coming off of su- coming off of Sunday, is undoubtedly Sting. The response pretty well indicates that Sting vaulted past the Road Warriors and Randy Savage into the spotlight years behind the Hulkster as the game's hottest act. Uh, Up until just a few months ago, he never had any kind of a national push. He's probably never scored a clean pinfall on any major star, never even won a singles title. Uh, He says he's very good in the ring considering his experience, but he's far from the most polished performer in the NWA, and his interviews leave much to be desired. Call it charisma, rapport with the fans, or what have you, but the Ric Flair versus Sting match was the most widely viewed match in the history. Of the modern NWA and probably the most widely viewed match ever on cable television in this country.
1: Just insane stuff. Like that five point six, like an eighty eight is insane. Uh, it's interesting, like thinking about like the heat rankings because at this point the consolidation is really heavy. You really have Crockett and WWF, so like you're not going to be throwing out there Larry Zbysko in the dying days of AWA, <laughs> to be quite honest. So you have that. Uh, I did while you were talking about this, I did check something. He only had a brief tour of All Japan, only one tour. Yeah, there's.
0: I could only find one of the matches. It was with Dan Spivey. Dan Spivey. Yeah, I watched that match. But he has a match with Kobashi, I think, on that tour. Oh. And I could not find that match. Fuck. Yeah. Fuck. I was like, God. I just like. After I did lots of searches, I just tweeted, like, does anybody have this match? And I got got no response. But uh, if somebody has Sting versus Kinta Kobashi from 87, I would fucking kill to see it. Uh, you're right about it. It was a 5.8 rating, uh, which means it was viewed in an average quarter hour in 2,561,000 homes. Wild. Uh, Interesting phenomenon of clash is that the audience increased in every successive quarter hour, which is unusual for any two and a half hour show, and especially for wrestling, which often loses ground in these types of events, as everyone can see from following AW quarters. Uh, the Ric Flair versus Sting match had a 7.1 rating slash 15 share with 3,138,000 homes watching, while the last 15 minutes of that match had 3,447,000 homes watching which made it the most-watched wrestling slot on WTBS and ever for the NWA and probably the most-watched wrestling slot ever on cable television.
1: It's something that... Three and a half million people in a quarter. In 1988, on cable, which I think... uh, I'm going to look this up real quickly. I wonder what the cable adoption rate was in 1988 because it could not have been more than 30 30 million households. Cable adoption... Yep, we're doing this live. We're in doing, 1988. Well, yeah. You also
0: gotta think of like you had to have TBS. You know, TBS had to come to your
1: to your but town. TBS would have. TBS would have. It was the super station. It was them and WGN, and I forget the third one. There was a couple of them, but uh TBS was the one because that's how that's how everyone in the Southeast became huge uh uh Atlanta Braves fans. Like I I'm imagine sure. like the first few games you saw on TV were Braves games because of that?
0: Well, yeah, I also got Cubs game
1: because of WGN. That's true. That's true. So, yeah, I, I'm was... right. I, I pulled up a 85 page document about the timeline of pro wrestling. Oh, not pro wrestling. The timeline of cable in America. Let's see if they give me a number in 1988. Uh, stereo television came out in 1988. Okay, here we go. It is that 52 million cable customers in, in 1989. So what? 3 million have, of that. I have this. By
0: 1987, WTBS was available to 41.6 million households. So oh, okay. basically one in... 49 million by the summer of 88. So a little bit before this. So somewhere between 42 and 49 million at this time.
1: So just to put this in context... Three, well, what was it? it? was three and change, right? Three and a half For in a, the last quarter hour. So three and a half in the last quarter. We're talking about basically one in 12 households that had cable in the United States was watching the last 15 minutes of Sting versus Ric Flair at Clash of Champions 1. <laughs> yep. Just in context. I will. I wanted to drop that somehow. Oh, yeah.
0: Uh, all right, some some ratings updates or rankings updates from Dave Meltzer. May of 88, uh, Sting has moved up to 35th in the world in Dave Meltzer's rankings. And then in July, he's moved up to 30th. So Sting is uh, increasing in prominence
1: as he goes. I mean, mover and shaker Sting. I mean, Absolutely. think about other... I'm trying to think of, about other stuff in 1989. Yeah, that's stiff competition for him to jump up 10 spots.
0: Oh, absolutely. There's no doubt about it. Um, okay. So, then we move on. Uh, we're still in uh, 1988. And as we drift through 88 things start to change in the Observer as it relates to Sting. And the best I can tell, it's partly because he's not really being featured. You know, they haven't capitalized on this star-making turn at Clash 1. And partly because he is... We are seeing this stalling out of, of what he is as a pro wrestler. At Clash 3, he wrestles Barry Windham, and Dave Meltzer says, Windham looked great in carrying Sting, who works hard and has more charisma than anyone in pro wrestling. Sting still has to expand his offensive repertoire for these long matches, as he seems not to know enough moves to go long distances without being carried. And I I think that's pretty fair, other than, you know, the Flair match, which obviously goes 45 minutes, and he doesn't do a lot of moves, and he's still great, but... Uh, Barry Wyndham, whom I love, is no Ric Flair.
1: Yeah, Barry Windham. That's a guy that wrestling should have been a lot kinder to. <laughs> like he, like, like the Wyndhams, really, yeah. I mean, because Kendall was never really that good, but Barry was great. But does Ric Flair really need, I mean, not Ric Flair, does Sting really need to learn that many moves at that time, though? Like, no,
0: of course he, he doesn't
1: yeah i i think you're kind of just uh getting a little bit prickly there dave like the crowd the, the crowd would pop for him for just like tripping and falling on rick flair at this point he doesn't need to like learn how to do a cravat sting should have never learned how to do anything more than like the death drop the stinger splash and the death lock and then you know being able to get out of holds and, and to turn the figure four. That's all Singh really needed to do at this point of his career because the crowd would carry it regardless. And that's one of the things about that, about the Clash 1 match is that the crowd is invested in like a two-minute bear hug. You don't need to do... He doesn't need to learn moves.
0: No, when, when I say it's fair, I just mean it goes along with my earlier comment that he needed to learn how to string together offensive yeah. moves better. Uh, but no, he no, he... Proves with his career that he did not need to know how to do very many moves that had really nothing to do with his popularity or uh, or anything. Uh, but I thought it was interesting because by November we see him falling in the Observer ratings to forty fourth,
1: heartbreaking uh,
0: behind Biff Wellington at thirty seven.
1: <sighs> Biff Wellington, different from Beef Wellington. And also a different Biff <laughs> Wallington. Because <laughs> I, yes. I think it's the Calgary one he's referring to, right? Uh, Chris Benoit's original tag team partner.
0: Uh, that strikes me as correct without uh, spending too much time thinking about it.
1: We've already spent too much time on Biff Wallington.
0: Probably. Shawn Michaels came in at 54th, in case you're wondering. Um, all right. So we're in December 88. And this thing we were talking about earlier where Sting kind of gets fucked by things happening happens again because uh, Dusty Rhodes and Jim Crockett are out of Crockett uh, because Ted Turner is coming in. Ted Turner is buying into uh, Crockett, buying into NWA and taking it over. And Jim Hurd, this is the first time we see Jim Hurd, who was a, a former Pizza Hut executive who is now going to be running a pro wrestling company. But again, we have a new person in charge of the company where Sting's working and, you know, he's definitely an outsider to Jim Hurd. There's no doubt about that.
1: Yeah. And Jim Hurd and Kip Frey are like two, are two guys that really kind of dominate WCW pretty much like until Watts comes in and then, Forget who, who they go to. They don't go to Bischoff already after Frey. They, they go back to Dusty again, right? Like, it's Dusty in a committee for a while, I want to say. But, like, if you're interested in seeing, like, how bad it was, uh, Mick Foley's first book, Have a Nice Day, talks a lot about how much uh, Jim Hurd was just out of lunch as Booker. And Jim Hurd was the person that thought that Ric Flair looked too old, needed to get a haircut, and then f- and then let him go to WWF. Uh,
0: The the Observer, well, not really the readers, Dave, in 88, he chose 34 members of an impromptu editorial board to vote on the ultimate rankings. And uh, Sting finished 26th that year after finishing 45th in 87. So, you know, he's still pretty well thought of. And this, according to the yearbook that year, these ratings were to be based strictly on in-ring ability displayed and work rate.
1: Yeah, you know,
0: that is, it lines up, it lines up here. It does. So in January of 89, George Scott, who was referenced earlier, takes over booking for whatever you want to call this version of uh, the promotion. The NWA is basically what it's kind of referred to at this point because Crockett is gone. So you really, hard to call it Crockett at this
1: point. It's WCW at this point. Like as soon as, at least in my book, as soon as Turner. Well, sure. But it's not quite it. WCW yet. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I mean, there's Ric Flair reasons why it does not call it WCW yes. until later.
0: Yeah. And we see Sting just kind of float, uh, in March of 89. Uh, Dave's writing about the Shy town rumble show. Sting pinned Butch Reed with a sunset flip, uh, mm-hmm. He says, Sting has amazing charisma, but this was just another event in the long chain of events that is failing in their attempt to utilize the guy correctly. This match wasn't awful as in a negative star match, but it was awful in that they have the potential next superstar of the promotion in a boring match with little action where he doesn't get the crowd exciting, excited with his wrestling. And that's kind of what we see for a while. Um, then there's this interesting note March 6, 1989, Observer. TBS has offered Sting a three-year contract, reportedly for $280,000 per year, Dave editorializes. Keep in mind, I don't expect anyone to believe these money figures because I'm skeptical of them as well, but they always could be true. Uh, He says his current contract for something like $52,000 expires at the end of April. Talk is that TBS feels that Sting and Flair are his two most marketable commodities, but they've got to put Sting into something meaningful, to take advantage of his charisma. Uh, they did not do so. Clash 6. Dave writes, Sting versus Rip Morgan. Ha, ha, ha. Make it quick and dynamic and get it over with. Then get Sting involved somehow in a main event feud to get this push going.
1: Dave might have been the biggest Sting fan ever at that time. He, he was a big Sting fan, without a doubt. Like, that's almost like to a shocking degree, considering what Dave said in the 2000s about Sting. Like, right. in a moment, Dave was all about Sting.
0: Yes. And he's, he's brought Sting back up a little bit. Sting's uh, 35th in the March 27, 89 singles
1: rankings. So, I, I mean, he beat, uh, he beat Rip Morgan. I mean, how couldn't he, he advance did. up the rankings?
0: He did. Uh, Sting would also, in April of 89, win his first title. He won the NWA television title, his first, you know, world title, quote unquote, uh, certainly his first NWA title. Uh, and folks, the bookers changed again. Uh, as of press time, Dave writes, April 10th, 1989, the NWA booking is being handled by a committee consisting of Eddie Gilbert, Kevin Sullivan, Rick Flair, Jim Ross, Jim Hurd, and Jim Barnett. Although the key influences are obviously Gilbert, Sullivan, and Ross, and of course, it turned out Flair was also a, a huge uh, influence in this booking. Something that
1: I, I think that if you take like the breadth of the EE Extended Universe, I think people would realize booking by committee, I can only think of one case of booking by committee actually really working, and I might be being worked on that myself. It's just a bad idea because you have Barnett in there. Barnett was basically out of wrestling, was brought back in. To be in that committee, if I'm right, Jim Ross was like used to being like, a, he came into wrestling as the driver for a blind promoter and became a referee like this. And then Dusty, I mean, is always gonna look out for Dusty. Rick always looked out for Rick there. Watts actually in '89 wasn't completely out of it at that point. So, like, really, you do have one of his champions there in Bill Watts, but that's a bad booking committee given their tendencies. Oh. What happened there?
0: Oh, no, there's no Bill Watts. I thought you said Bill Watts was a part of it. No, Eddie Gilbert, Kevin Sullivan, Rick Flair. Gilbert was
1: who I was thinking about. Gilbert. Yeah. Yeah,
0: Yeah, so that is certainly a a champion of stings, but uh, there was... It's funny you said that because Dave reported at this time that he thought Watts was going to be hired as the primary booker, but then that didn't end up happening. Watts,
1: because... Didn't Watts, like, he's had, like, weird, like, six-month stints in WWF, like, multiple times there. I think this might have been coming off of one of those stints there, that it just very was clear to him that him and Vince McMahon just never would get along. And, you know, two miserable people make each other miserable.
0: Uh, yes. Uh, But this did lead to the next feud that we're going to talk about on the show, because, uh... Sting ends up in a feud with the Great Muda, And uh, the Great Muda challenged Sting at the Great American Bash in 89. Uh, a funny note, the match was booked with a classic, controversial, dusty finish, even though Rhodes had been fired months earlier. Basically, Sting got the three count. They said he was the winner. The replay showed that Muda's shoulder was up. So they decided to declare the title vacant. And then those two uh, basically just... Had a bunch of matches uh, that leads to the one that we're gonna we're gonna talk about. But there's a few funny notes I wanted to include from the July 31, 89, Observer. Kangaroo Athletic Wear, based in St. Louis, will be coming out with a line of shoes called Flair, Sting, and Luger after the NWA wrestlers. Got to get me a pair of Stings.
1: I mean, these are ruse. So, th- so you could get like the little pocket with, uh, you know, for Ric Flair probably would be something unseemly there. Sting. I mean, Sting is wholesome, you know. What I mean, never did steroids in his life, Steve Borden. Never did, never did. Mm. And then Lex Luger, he you put your roids in there. What would Sting have in his little kangaroo pocket and his things? Um, maybe
0: something to like fix his face paint. Yeah, maybe maybe a grease pencil. Yeah, that might do my work for him. There we go. Yeah. Uh, in August we learned that Ric Flair was now the chairman of the booking committee. So he's the champion and the, uh, and running the booking committee. And here's a fun note, August 21, 1989, Keith Mitchell was hired as head of production. Mitchell was the production head for world-class during its glory days and was a pioneer in high production values of pro wrestling shows before the WWF.
1: Yeah. I mean, so he had almost 40 years. Keith Mitchell did.
0: Yeah, cause... if you don't if you don't recall, Keith Mitchell was running production for AEW until recently, and uh, this shows you how long his old ass had been in pro wrestling before <laughs> that.
1: Still not as long as Kevin Dunn though. Kevin Dunn started as yeah. a baby.
0: Insane. Uh, Sting and Muda had a bunch of rematches for the vacant television title. They always ended in disqualification. Uh, but then we get to the match that I included here with Muda, and this is. Our last match that we're going to talk about, i got a few more things to mention, but this is our last match we'll talk about. Uh, Great Muda, September 1, 1989. I um, young Muda. I know we're talking about Sting on this show, but young Muda is wild.
1: Oh, yeah. I mean, it, it's something that is, that is someone that that's a 20-part series talking about this is Kenji Mudo. Because, like his excursion, like I got into the, this argument with Alan Farrell about this. And actually, I I wonder what your take about this is. We were trying to discover, or try to decide who had the best excursion of all time, and we came down to three names: uh, Great Muda, Takeshi Morishima, or Kira Tozawa Well,
0: I got a feeling where you came down.
1: Yeah, of course I was with Morishima. Yeah. Oh, I, I just assumed you
0: went to Zawa. Of course. Of course
1: I did. Come on. <laughs>
0: Uh, that's very hard to say. I mean, I don't know enough about Tozawa, obviously, to have an opinion on Tozawa's excursion. But obviously, the Morishima one is insane. Buddha, uh, there's some wild stuff that Muda does. Uh, so I'd have to really think about that and maybe watch matches to think about it.
1: I mean, we've got to get some uh, Puerto Rico in here. Because that's where the, that's where he ended up first, which is that's a wild place to drop someone. Is eighty nine in Puerto Rico? No, I'm sorry, eighty eight in Puerto Rico.
0: Brother, as I'm reading through these observers, and then I get the big long string of uh, Bruiser Brody has been killed, and you know, reading that reporting in real time, it's like holy fuck.
1: Yeah, yeah, and it's just like like something about like Puerto Rico. Like the reason why I say that's wild dropping in there, not only because of Bruiser Brody being Bruiser Brody you know, one of the, the big one of the top three biggest stars in Japan as a gaijin, Bruiser Brody. So like sending him to Puerto Rico around that time is insane. But Puerto Rico was a bloodbath. It was the bloodbath territories, like where like I know uh, Dutch Mantel talks about like, oh yeah, I bled in baseball stadiums for 10 years there. Like I can't tell you the amount of times I've had piss thrown at me. Puerto Rico is a wild first stop for an excursion for someone. You know, Muto would have been not even like twenty six, I think. Yeah, he was twenty six. Dropping this guy first ever excursion Puerto Rico as the Super Black Ninja.
0: I thought in this in somewhat of a similar way of the, of how the flare match really worked for Sting. I thought this layout really worked well for what Sting could do because Muda has really good offense, so Sting can sell for his offense the same way he could sell for Flair's offense, and it works. And then he's got those that handful of big moves that he does that he can do comebacks with. Um, I think it's, you know, you were talking about this earlier him as a heater, but my overall view of watching a lot of these matches was he does great comebacks in singles matches. I never really thought early on that his hot tag was that great, uh, but he really is good at doing comebacks in these kind of matches.
1: Yeah, th- this is something that, like, you get something that I will be saying a lot over the next two episodes, the passion of Sting, because they basically they love having the J-Tax Corporation at this point, which is an insane 89 WCW st- stable with my main man Terry Funk part of it. Uh, they love finding ways where like he gets like the he has to overcome the odds. He gets beat down so many times that he bleeds some. He's not a guy who's like, known really as a bleeder, though he bleeds some, not necessarily here, but in other things like this. And it really kind of defines the formula. My big takeaway from this, Aaron, and compare and contrast this with Clash One, I think, and feel free to push back on this. I thought that was interesting. I think Singh felt a little bit more natural in this match against Ric Flair, like Ric Flair, he held up his end of the deal. He was, he was better than a broomstick. He was able to like the crowd connection, all of that really, you know, put over the top here. But I would say with this, like working with like the pacing of great Muda, I would argue better fits in with like of him being like the heater, the big guy here. Like, cause you have K, cause you have Kichi doing handspring uh, elbows and just going at like a pace that in a way, kind of plays up like rick flair because like it's just something like there was like the clip of this like afterwards of sting like doing like the clothesline it's not a great clothesline but it was just the the speed and like the collision that i was like wow having him like wrestle guys who just go at a different pace much faster than him and letting him react and just be a ward low for back of, lack of better words like it would have been the crowd have gone so insane that they would have to, they would have treated him a lot better from that, I would argue.
0: Yeah, I'm going to flesh this out more in part two, but when I talk about him kind of not knowing what to do next, he can sometimes really slow down the pace of a match because it's like plotting between one spot to the next sometimes. You can eliminate that with Sting by putting him in there with someone who is very quick, like Muda, Or you can find other types of matches to put him in. And we're going to see several of those in part two that accentuate his skills and minimize uh, the flaws that he has as a pro wrestler, which is like, you know, how you fucking book pro wrestling. So that's what you should do. But a lot of times that wasn't done with Sting. A lot of times he was put in these bad situations where he's against a guy who is not going to do that for him. You know, Flair works at a deliberate pace. But he's one of the best of all time, so he can figure it out regardless of who he's in there with. Uh, But if he's not wrestling flair, you needed to have Stink in there with the right guy, the right step, the right everything going on if you want to have a really good, you know, star rating style match. Uh, But obviously, the crowd didn't care anything. That's the main thing. Part one, part two, part three. Another spoiler alert. The crowd is going to go crazy for Sting every time he comes out.
1: Sting was always cool. Sting was always cool. It's like you think about like 1989, how can't you think this guy's the coolest guy? He is jacked, he has face paint. And at this point, like wrestlers and face paint were just like a thing that's like, oh, this guy looks badass. He has the high top, you know, going with him. He shouts, he does a flying corner splash here. Like, he hits all the quadrants here. Like, Sting was always cool. He was. Uh, but
0: unfortunately, in 89, Dave starts to sour on Sting for some reason. In October 30, 89, issue of The Observer, Sting doesn't make the top 50 singles wrestlers. How dare he? Yeah, he's, he's dropped off the, off the list. Uh, yeah, as you talked about, Flair ends up in a... Feud with Terry Funk and the JTEX Corporation. Um, eventually, Steen comes to Flair's aid. Uh, there's this insane Thunderdome cage match at Halloween Havoc 89. I mean, a wild match.
1: That's not the one that I dealt with, butcher. They act like he gets electrocuted. That's 93, right?
0: Yeah, no, 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 no. This is uh, Flair. And Sting versus Terry Funk and Muda. Okay. Okay, I know, I know, but it's in a cage and the cage is electrified and they have like Halloween decorations on the cage, which is insane. Uh, It's it's not a very good match, but it is funny in a lot of uh ways.
1: I I think it sounds like the perfect match for 1989. (laughs) Yeah, but when you think
0: Flair, Sting versus Funk and Muda, you're like, oh God, this is like, this could be an all timer. Uh, And it's not, but you know,
1: it is a thing. The JTEX Corporation is an insane stable. (laughs) Like, just like flesh this out here. Basically, uh, Gary Hart, one of the best managers of all time, if you could find a copy of his book, it's worth reading. Like, it's actually a fascinating real fascinating thing he basically had like the stable that was bought by uh a japanese conglomerate as like corporate raiders <laughs> and it was gary gary hart terry funk dick slater great muda the dragon master slash mr j uh that's kazuo Sakurada, you know and the better known as a japanese version of kendo nagasaki and buzz sawyer and it later kind of evolved into the studs stable like, there's a lineage here that starts with the JTEX Corporation, Err, I don't know why, as we're getting close to two hours, I want to talk about the JTEX Corporation, but, buddy, PWI Wrestling Feud of the Year involved the JTEX Corporation. So, there we God go. Goddamn
0: right. Well, this is kind of the thing I want to end with, which is, you know, at, at the end of this year, 89, basically. NWA is in the mud. I mean, it's not going well business wise for NWA. Flair is on top. Flair's booking the territory. And basically, what you're looking at is how do you go forward? Uh, and Dave talks about this a lot in the last few issues, especially the December 26, 89 version after, after Starcade. Basically, he's talking about you got Flair, you got Luger. And you got Sting. At this point, Dave has decided that he has more confidence in Luger than Sting as a number one guy. And I, I, you know, I don't really
1: know. That's insane.
0: Yeah, not That's having insane. watched it in real time, I guess it's hard to say. But I don't understand that. Uh, but basically, what he's saying is Flair's not drawing on top anymore. You know, it's it's not working out. Uh, even though he's still like a, a top wrestler. He says Luger is good, very good, but not really close at all to Flair. Sting can do high spots and has a lot of charisma, but is very limited in what he can do when he's not being carried. He even gets lost in matches. And at this point, Sting is not shown to be a draw, although he points out with everything the NWA was going through at the time, could anybody really draw? Because Flair wasn't drawing either. You know, nobody was drawing. Uh, So what do you do? And Dave basically suggests you got to book this out so that you put Luger with some guys that Flair can draw with. And if Luger can't draw with him, you got to move on from him. You know, it's just that's not going to work out. And then you got to put Sting in situations where you can figure out not only is the Krakenu be behind him, but is he going to be able to be the top guy? And basically, his point is you book it in such a way. That the business aspect figures out for you which of the three guys you should go with. Uh, But I just thought it was an interesting point to end this part with, that that's kind of where we are. Is it Flair, Luger, or Sting who is going to drive this company into the 90s? Yeah.
1: Yeah. And it is, for those who don't know, it's going to be a well ride as we talk about 90 through basically 96. I mean, basically until Hogan comes into WCW. It's, it, it, it's, a, moving, it, it's a moving question here. Uh, so it's interesting the proposition that he sets up there because when you set up that proposition there, he really is showing his doubt in Sting and how, how he completely has lost face over Sting over the last year. Which, if you look at his booking, would make sense, but it's not like Sting got any worse. He right.
0: just—that's what's yeah. weird—is that Dave is saying they got to do something with Sting. They're putting him in these shitty feuds that don't do anything for him. But then he has the the of feud, which is good. But Dave has somehow decided, like, eh, you know, now that I've seen whatever a year of him, not really doing much, not so sure about this Sting guy, uh, and buying into Luger which I think is interesting. But if you look at the 89 yearbook and how, you know, that was voted, you got Steen comes in fifth for best baby face after Hogan, Warrior, Akira Maeda, and Ric Flair. Uh, he does show up in the honorable mention section for most unimproved, although he's the last in that. But, you know, he gets, he gets some votes there. Uh, and he's fourth in most charismatic after Hogan, Maeda, and Warrior. And in the... Uh, the rankings at the end of the year, again, strictly in-ring ability and work rate. Uh, he comes in at 34 after being 26 the year before. So people are definitely, you know, he's definitely moved down a little bit, but not wildly. Uh, so Dave's view of the three of those and where they stand uh, is, it's fascinating because it doesn't really make a ton of sense to me based on the fact that he recognized the bad booking wasn't serving sting well so i'm not sure why uh, why he came away with that at the time
1: yeah and it's like flair was always around the Horseman at the time so he had his group he believes that luger needs to have a group around him and sting is just gonna go huh, 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 nah, nah. like that's setting that guy up to fail regardless like in the scenario he's presenting because who is sting going to ally with like that's kind of foreshadowing crow sting in a weird way if you really want to think about it but dave lost faith before the fans did and before his readership did because i i have not read through the early 90s observer i know that you've been going through them as we're doing pre-pro for this and setting this all up but i don't think dave ever really gets the faith back to my recollection in Sting. so it's an insane point for him to lose it because stings in five-star matches after this point
0: well, we're gonna we're gonna find out, Mike. In part two, uh, part two is gonna be basically the WCW era, uh, nineteen ninety 1990 through nineteen ninety nine. I know that's a, a long period, but that's just how it made sense most the most sense to me as an era. I have six matches chosen so far. I don't know if uh, Mike is gonna hold me to my promise to get it down to five, but I'm having a really hard time. Let's cutting- do six. Let's All do right. six.
1: Yeah. All right. I mean, I we we basically watch six matches here if you include the That's true. The CWA angle. So yeah, let's do six.
0: All right. We're gonna do six matches. Uh I mean there none of them are very long whatsoever. So uh that's not a big deal. But we'll do that. And of course, like we did on this episode, we'll cut through some of the uh, other stuff that was going on uh broadly, although I'm trying to keep it broad since uh, i have another <laughs> potential show where i talk about other things so we'll see whether that happens but yeah i had a fucking blast mike i hope you had this as ruled. much fun yeah i hope oh, you had yeah. as much fun as i did and i don't I love know when we're gonna bring back part two i will tell you this is a lot of work so <laughs> uh it might be a little bit but uh it might not be because we're so fired up right now but there will be part two and a part three uh relatively soon
1: Yeah, can't wait. This was a blast. Thanks, everyone, for listening.
0: Thanks, everybody. See ya.